The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Trzakian. Welcome back. Well, we are recording today, November 29th. This is Cyber Monday, the day when you're supposed to get online even more than you already are and buy things up in advance of the <laughs> holiday season. Cyber Monday follows Black Friday, which is, I guess, the physical versus the virtual reality world of shopping. But actually... Black Friday also turned into Red Friday because the markets were all very red as a consequence of this new Omicron virus. So we have to talk, Jackie, about the huge drop in oil prices and what that means as a consequence of this Omicron virus, which is an ever-changing story. It'll be changing by the day. Mm-hmm. But there was also other news buried amidst the retail shopping and the virus and the market screens, and that was the Canadian Energy Regulator made a historic decision, which was a positive one for many Western Canadian oil producers. They denied Enbridge, the big pipeline company's application, to contract the mainline. And we've had many podcasts on that. It's just that uh, the ruling came out on Friday in favor of the Canadian oil producers who were opposed to more firm contracting. But more detail on that in a minute. Why don't we, uh, well, let's talk about this oil price drop because uh, we are, as we speak and record, still under $70 a barrel WTI. That's right. So Friday was was a tough day. Obviously, oil prices ended the day almost uh, down $10 or 13% Hmm. at $68 per barrel. And it did recover a little bit here Monday morning, but it's fallen back again. And, uh, you know, think about the prices at the start of November traded as high as $84. So, yeah. you know, we're talking about a $15 drop here. So that's pretty big volatility and came as a big surprise, I think. Yeah. I think people were pretty confident that prices were only going to get stronger. There was a real bullish sentiment in the market. And, uh, you know, the worst of COVID, we believed, was behind. There was a lot of confidence that the OPEC Plus group would continue to manage the markets and keep prices high. And you had all these comments from the bullish banks like Goldman Sachs talking about maybe even the potential of oil hitting $100 or more mm-hmm. in 2022. So that narrative uh, really got shaken on Friday. It got sure. shaken. I don't think the narrative is gone necessarily, but it's certainly interrupted by the Omicron virus and its potential impact not only on economic growth as a consequence of, again, supply chain disruptions potentially, but also on international air travel, which had picked up. So how much actually does... From a travel perspective, what are people saying that this is going to impact potentially more countries impose travel border restrictions such as from South Africa, seven countries down in the southern part of Africa, including South Africa, as well as other countries? World jet fuel consumption was expected to increase 1 million barrels a day year on year in 2022. Now, it was still lower than what we had pre-COVID. There's still mm-hmm. less international travel yep. than there was before. In fact, you'd have to go up about 2 million barrels a day before you'd get back to uh, pre-COVID type levels. However, if we see some regional lockdowns, as we're seeing right now, and those are extended and they maybe grow into greater parts of the world, we could easily see one or two million barrel a day change in oil demand. A lot of that driven by 
jet fuel use. So that is the real concern. I don't think anyone thinks that the world's going to lock down again like it did in mm-hmm. the spring of 2020, which was a 10 million barrel a day change yeah. in oil demand. But I think it really could slow down international travel. And the expectation of one or two million barrels a day less demand is is material. Demand yeah. really does matter. I mean, next year, these bullish scenarios like Goldman Sachs and others are assuming about four and a half or greater million barrels a day of oil demand growth. Mm -hmm. And if you knock one or two off that, then you go from a market that's tight to a market that looks pretty well supplied. So it is consequential when it comes to the oil markets. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, we can debate these numbers is far too premature to know exactly what the impact of this virus is. There's going to be lots of headlines and lots of scrutiny as to the transmissibility of the virus, more importantly, the impact on mortality and that kind of stuff, hospitalization rates. But I think at a higher level, what this tells me is that there's going to be a heightened sensitivity to any virus coming out. You know, one of the things is is that even in the last few years, the ability to rapidly sequence viruses and detect new ones and so on and so forth. I mean, this just tells me that as a consequence of this surge in ability to catalog disease data, I'll call it pathogenic data, every time somebody detects something, it's just, let's let's pull the fire alarm and stop travel, it seems. And I think this is, we're entering into a very volatile situation where things like oil prices or any equities that are attached to travel, for example, are going to be highly volatile because this isn't going to be the last time a variant is detected. This isn't the last time a completely new kind of virus or some other pathogen isn't detected. And so we're in, I think we're entering into a very volatile period. Well, you think about it, what we've been through, right? Like when I first saw that, I'm like, oh my God, we're going to go back to that again. So maybe over time, if we learn that these variants are not all like what we experienced in the in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, maybe we get less right. concerned, but you're right. Like after what we've lived through, it's going to take a number of variants popping up that are deemed to be not a big deal yeah. before people stop having that reaction, I think. Yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, something like this could have well been just an epidemic, a localized infection that potentially died out and nobody would ever know about it. Right? Yeah. Now it's possible that this thing's an epidemic. Maybe it's a pandemic. I don't know. But now everybody knows about it. And the ability to, as I said, get more and more granular with the scientific cataloging of all these sorts of pathogens just means that we're going to be on pins and needles every time a new one is discovered. And I think that that's a a dangerous trend. I think it points to volatility. For sure. And I'm going to speak totally out of my level of expertise here, but, you know, I was listening to the radio and it was talking about the fact that Africa has only about 7% of people fully vaccinated and the developed Mm -hmm. countries like Canada, for instance, has... 76% 76% people with two shots. The U.S. is quite a bit lower. I think they're about 60%. Mm-hmm. But these variants, whether it be the Delta or the Alpha or whatever, there's been different ones over the last year and a half, have generally come from populations that had low vaccination rates. So right. there's big parts of the world that have very low vaccination rates. So it's probably likely mm. we're going to see more episodes like this and yeah, no, until we so. get yeah. more people vaccinated in all of the mm. world. And I think that's going to take some time. Where did you get that? The radio, did you say? Yeah, the radio. I still listen to the radio. Wow. Well, my authority is the elevator news. So (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I did want to talk about one thing, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, if none of this had happened on Friday, this is all we'd be talking about with the oil markets. (laughs) But I thought I would just say, you know, there was kind of a one-two punch to the oil markets uh, last week. Of course, the first punch really had no impact at all. 
what President Biden announced along with other consuming countries like China, India, and Japan, that they wanted to use their strategic petroleum reserve to reduce the price of oil. That's kind of unusual. You know, usually it's used because there's a real security of supply situation. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really have much impact on the price. Even though it was a large release, a million barrels a day over 60 days, in the big scheme of things, you know, it kind of reduces the problem for a short time period, but doesn't sort of overall change the fundamentals of if we were going to get that high demand, like the Goldman Sachs types were expecting, you mm-hmm. know, it wouldn't have a huge impact. So it didn't sort of surprise me too much that uh, it didn't affect the oil markets that much. But I guess uh, little do they know, by the end of the week, they had a big impact on oil price through a whole other yeah, set through, of events here. Yeah, but I think it's important to talk a little bit about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve Network was instituted in the wake of the oil price shocks of the 1970s because it was recognized that countries needed to have a strategic petroleum reserve in the event of disruption, geopolitical or otherwise. And so the Western Consortium of Countries instituted strategic petroleum reserves. And interestingly, only two countries did not. And those two countries are Norway and Canada. And so actually, we don't have a strategic petroleum reserve. And so we are not able to release it. That's sort of an interesting side note on energy security. The release of strategic petroleum reserve merely to bring price down is really a band-aid. That's really not what it's meant for. It's just a band-aid because there's an underlying structural issue that still isn't remedied. It's still actually not even remedied with any of this Omicron virus that we were just talking about. And that is that there is still underinvestment in the oil and gas complex, the global complex, relative to the demand, the very stubborn demand growth that we're still seeing, notwithstanding, as I said, these virus alarms, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that uh, the release of strategic petroleum reserve basically sends the wrong price signal for energy security in the long term. Like trying to bring the price down does not do anything, actually (laughs) dissuades the oil industry from investing more. And if you haven't remedied the demand side, it does absolutely nothing. 50 million barrels release by President Biden is two and a half days of U.S. consumption and about 12 hours of global consumption. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, like, imagine there's a hurricane coming and you just have, like, one of those, like, umbrellas trying to protect you from it and it's just getting blown away. That's kind of what it reminds me of. It's just the forces of demand are so large relative to what you'd have in those petroleum reserves. And so we know, and it's a whole separate topic, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about it at some point, electric vehicle sales are up. But, you know, in the big scheme of things, we are so far away from replacing over a billion vehicles on the road. And actually, I saw a number the other day. The number of operating internal combustion engines in the world for all purposes is somewhere between two and a half and three billion internal combustion engines. So to (laughs) substitute all those out and electrify and reduce, it's just going to take a long time, far longer than a 50 million barrel release from a strategic petroleum reserve. Yeah, so it didn't have much impact. They got the impact, though, through something that's much greater people stopping to fly, right? Mm -hmm. No, maybe they should just outlaw flying in the U.S. That's how they can bring down oil Mm. demand. That might be more impactful. Well, I mean, I I think it's realistic to say that business travel has been substantially impeded and impacted with the ability to do meetings on video and so on. 
But what we were seeing, and I even noticed it the two or three times I traveled this fall, that the airports were getting busier and busier every time. Each subsequent time I went, I'm going, wow. Like this yeah, was, this things are definitely getting busier. Oh, they were getting really busy. And I think notwithstanding this Omicron thing, like the Christmas season was going to be very busy. Let's wrap up. The oil price on Friday was likely an overreaction. However, if we find out more that the Omicron reduces international travel, then I think the big takeaway is those bullish oil price scenarios that were being talked about are probably less likely, at least in 2022. But it argues that they could just be deferred. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. I mean, at some just, point, the demand's going to come back. And yeah. as you say, this whole event will actually serve to even uh, cause less investment in the supply side. Right. So eventually, that tight market's going to come back. All right. On to the Enbridge mainline contracting decision that was also on Friday. The decision was brought forth by the Canada Energy Regulator, otherwise known as the CER. So, Jackie, tell us what happened because you were intimately involved in that whole process. Yeah, like Friday was a big day. We had this meltdown of the oil markets, followed by the announcement at 2.30 of this decision by the CER. And yes, I was a witness for the Explorers and Producers Association of Canada, EPAC, that represents smaller and intermediate oil producers in Western Canada. This has been more than two years that I've been involved in this. And so, you know, I was waiting at 2.30 for that. So I have to tell you, my online shopping didn't happen till like <laughs> 9 o'clock at night. Uh, by the time I got that news, got all the phone calls, read mm-hmm. some of the decision, which was 150-some yeah. pages. But uh, this, I think, is a major decision. I think it was a big win for Canadian producers, and I think for Canadians, mm-hmm. although they may not necessarily recognize the significance of it. So let's just talk about the producer group, because you represented EPAC, the Explorer producers, which is typically the independent, sort of mid-sized producers, we're calling but it wasn't exclusively opposed by the small and mid-sized group. There were some larger companies. Yes, definitely. So whether you were small or large, there was a fairly large opposition. Virtually the majority of Canadian upstream oil producers were opposed. That includes companies like CNRL Mm -hmm. and Total and Meg. And then you even had integrateds like Suncor that were opposed. You even had province of Saskatchewan, Mm -hmm. Canadian refiners, like the co-op refinery in Saskatchewan, but also some of the refiners out in eastern Canada, like Shell Canada and Valero. I'm not naming everyone here, but you had mm-hmm. some um, other pipeline companies, like Interpipeline okay. opposed. So there was a big group, but you know, at the end of the day, it boiled down to the supporters were mostly U.S. refiners, or they were Canadian companies that had interests in U.S. Right. refineries. Okay, let's just back up for a second, because that tells us about sort of the sides that were taken. But let's just get back to what was being decided upon. The issue was that Enbridge has a big pipeline called the Main Line, which goes from Western Canada to... Well, it goes to the Midwest of the yeah. U.S., and then it connects right. with other systems. Right. And for decades, that pipeline, which is almost an exclusive supply line to those markets, anybody could basically get their product onto that pipeline. Yeah, so they call it common carrier, but basically no one has rights to the pipeline and each month there's an auction Mm -hmm. and everyone who wants to ship on the pipeline can put forward their name and then if it's oversubscribed, which it often is, there's a curtailment of everybody, you know, like if you wanted... A rationing. A rationing so that everyone who wants to get on it can. And that's been going on for 70 years and, you know, this is such a critical pipeline to Western Canada. It makes up, you know, 70% of all of our oil export capacity. Mm -hmm. And as you know, it's not that easy to build new pipelines. So it's really, really a prized asset today Mm -hmm. for the Canadian industry. 
And I think it's worth going back to the history of why is it open access? Why is it auctioned off each month? And, you know, the Enbridge mainline was actually started in 1949. It was actually called the Interprovincial Pipeline Company back then. Mm -hmm. Its birth marked the beginning of pipeline regulation in Canada. And the politicians of the day had a lot of foresight saying, you know, this pipeline is going to be such a critical asset. Whoever owns it, if it's one company that owns it, like one oil company, they could use that to their advantage. So the only way that we would let this go forward is that if it was open to other companies, if they were forced to let other companies use it, then that market power that they would gain by owning this critical piece of infrastructure would be lessened. And so mm-hmm. seven years ago, the parliament and the politicians of the day recognized that regulation of these natural monopolies was needed for the public interest. Because you just don't want one big oil company at the end of the line. You want to have mm-hmm. uh, competition and, and lots of different types of companies. Yeah, you know, I think this is really important. You said, like, it's a critical vi- asset, a vital asset. It's not just about business and economics. It's also about national interests, national security, energy security, so on. And in most countries, vital energy infrastructure whether it's electrical transmission lines or pipelines even, in most countries, they're state-owned. And so the state has Mm -hmm. control Mm -hmm. over it. Now, we're unique in North America in general, where a lot of the producers and a lot of the transporters, such as the pipeline companies, are in the free market, publicly traded, and that, as a consequence these vital assets like big pipelines have to be regulated, which is really what that 1949 Mm -hmm. thing was about. Yeah, and it basically said, you know, it has to be open to everyone so that everyone that wants to move on it has the rights to move their product on it. It also has to be regulated in that they don't take too much economic rent because Mm -hmm. there's no competition. So they could charge whatever they want in theory. And so the regulator also had to make sure that the cost for transporting crude oil, or, or, you know, this is also used for the rail lines as well, yeah. you know, is fair and doesn't hurt the Canadian economy because uh, a company that owns this critical infrastructure isn't extracting way too much economic okay, rent. Okay, so what was, uh, what was the decision about? Because Enbridge wanted to move away from that common carrier model where everybody could get on it, and they wanted to convert it into one where they would long-term contract it to selective companies. That's right. They wanted to switch it to be... of the pipeline that people could sign up to having access to it for as long as 20 years at the highest level. And those companies would agree to a price that they would pay for for that whole duration. And that was a lot of concern because, uh, again, the folks that supported it were mainly U.S. refiners. So do we want a bunch of U.S. refiners or companies with U.S. refining assets to have control of this vital piece of infrastructure Uh, And especially at a time when we don't really have ability to add more pipes. If we lived in a perfect world, if someone were to charge too much or take advantage of their ownership of this asset, well, we could just build another pipeline and say, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to create some competition. But that can't happen today. And so it's really concerning. In fact, 70 years ago, it was important. If anything, it's more important today because it's very hard to build new pipelines and and add infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why... In the summer of 2019, when Enbridge started talking about this, they actually initiated a process to get people to sign up to it. And typically you would do that and then you'd go to the regulator for approval. But the opposition at that time was already actually all the same people, Mm -hmm. all the same Canadian producers that said, hey, we don't want this pipeline to be contracted. We want it to continue to be open access for all. We think there's a lot of concerns about negative implications 
to Canadian oil price and Canadian producers. And they actually asked the CER to stop the active open season. And they actually agreed to do that because of the concerns that were raised and the large level of opposition. So that was in September of 2019. And basically the regulator said, you need to get this approved before you would go make people sign contracts. So Enbridge went ahead and put forward this into the regulatory process in December of 2019. So this has been over two years and and actually longer when you consider that open season. I've said in the past that Enbridge is behaving rationally from a pure business context, but that if you overlay all these national interest arguments as it relates to fair rationing of transportation capacity for all producers, then we arrive at the decision that was reached on Friday, which is basically going back and staying with a status quo model. Yeah, so the regulator said you have to continue with the current tools that you have and and the open access that's there. I'll get to sort of the next steps. Enbridge actually put something out over the weekend in terms of what they think the next steps are. So, I mean, this is actually pretty dry stuff, but it's really important. And I think one of the things that has come out of this is that regulatory process works. There was fair hearing from both sides, two Mm -hmm. years of wrangling, thinking, and decision put forth that I think really is commonsensical and does preserve the national interest in terms of allowing access to all of the producers, hopefully not altering the market dynamics and so on. Is that the way to interpret this? Yeah, I mean, I I look at it and say, well, I don't think I fully appreciated the importance of regulators like the Canadian Energy Regulator. I mean, often, you know, we hear talk Mm -hmm. about them in terms of, oh, they're delaying everything and things are never getting done. But in this case, you know, our early politicians 70 years ago established these rules to protect the Canadian public interest. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's so necessary. You know, market power isn't a theoretical construct. It can happen when you have these large pipelines with no economic competition, and they do need to be regulated. So I got a much greater appreciation for Canada and the fact that we have regulations on, mm-hmm. on these sorts of issues. Mm-hmm. I always like to elevate these things to even even higher level. You know, what I take away from this is that we have now a situation where there's all sorts of policies that are coming down from above, both from the federal government and from the financial industry. We've talked about that before. And here we have a case where there was uh, the potential for regulation to cause unintended consequences or consequences that would disadvantage a group unnecessarily or even the country. We could potentially argue that. The point is, is that there was a challenge. There was debate, discussion, a ruling, and we carry on. We have a whole bunch of, as I said, policies now coming forth for reducing emissions, for ESG, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of these policies are fine, but they're not really being stress tested, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. There's there's no stress testing for unintended consequences. There's not a lot of debate and discussion. It's just coming raining down from the sky. And I think that what this Enbridge experience tells us is that we need more discussion, debate, and challenge to some of these things so that we don't unnecessarily hamper competitiveness or security, affordability, and not find out about it afterward and then have to take 
corrective action that we try and anticipate these sorts of things in advance. Like, for instance, we're trying to get to net zero by 2050, and we're going to come out with these five-year goals of how we're going to achieve that. And there's going to be people that view we should do it really, really fast. And then there's going to be people that have some information data that say, well, there's consequences to that. Like, we can't reduce this this fast. Or, you know, there'll be a consequence of less production and Mm -hmm. less royalties and taxes and less jobs. You know, but maybe there's another plan where we could achieve that goal a different way that would avoid some of Mm -hmm. those problems, right? So I think that this type of process is really valuable. Now, I would say it it would have to look different because there's a huge cost to these processes. I I think I didn't really appreciate that either. This oral hearing and the whole two-year episode, I think, cost tens of millions of dollars when you consider all the experts, right? Like they Mm -hmm. had experts from crude oil fundamentals to market power to economists and tolling experts. And every single group had many lawyers too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lawyers aren't too cheap. And it goes over such a long time period. And there were thousands and thousands of pages of text written where there were questions asked and then they were responded to and lawyers checked them all over. There were five rounds of written questions, for instance, thousands Mm -hmm. of pages. So I think, you know, we'd need to find maybe a more efficient, less costly way of doing it. Less time-intensive way, maybe. Yeah, I hear you on the tens of millions of dollars, but it potentially averted tens of billions of dollars of distorted markets. It's a lot of money, but at least we're debating the subject. Yeah, no, that's true. we're, We're trying to understand the potential unintended consequences, which, if you read all that text, was unearthed. And not everybody may agree with it, but at least the debate and the discussion happened. I don't see that kind of debate and discussion happening with a lot of the policies that are coming forward. And I think some of them are potentially going to cause tens of billions of dollars of market distortions. And in the end, in the worst case, we're not going to abate very much carbon as a consequence. And Mm -hmm. so I think, cost aside, I think that the whole concept of pausing and saying, whoa, wait a minute, let's take a look at this thing and see what it may do, and everybody discusses it, is a really good thing. Yeah, well, I think you'd need an arbiter like the commissioners at the Canadian Energy Regulator. I don't know if it would be them or someone else, but you definitely need someone at the end of the day because the two sides in this case were quite entrenched. And I think that would happen if you're talking about greenhouse gas emissions reductions, right? You'd have the folks that come along. There'd never be a meet in the middle. You need a group that can kind of... Arbitrate. Yeah, come off and say, you know, I listen to everybody... They all have arguments, but I'm not convinced the path A is the one we should go down because there's all these potential problems. Right, right. No, I think it's just going to be mandatory to critically review a lot of the policies, both, as I said, from government side and even more so from the financial regulatory side, because we need to think about what the potential unintended consequences may be. If we can do that, we can then hopefully optimally get to net zero rather than always be proverbially putting out fires along the way. No, I I definitely think some sort of process that brings the very different views together would Mm -hmm. be really, really constructive. To wrap it up, I think that the regulator did their job. It was a long process. I'm glad that it's behind us. In terms of next steps for the Enbridge mainline, as you said, the CER decision reads, the open season will not proceed and existing interim tolls and conditions of service will remain in effect, which means open access for all and ongoing as it's been for the last 70 years. Now, prior to this, there was an agreement on the mainline for what the tolls would be, and that was a collective agreement amongst all stakeholders, which included Canadian producers, but also U.S. refiners. 
and that lasted for 10 years. So Enbridge issued a press release on Sunday, and they said they will engage with stakeholders to negotiate what they will do going forward. But uh, one alternative may be another version of that previous agreement, the competitive tolling agreement. Well, well done. Well, thanks. I'm glad it's behind me, and I'm glad we had an outcome that was favorable for Canada. So with that, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you liked it, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com. 